Warning, this episode of Humble Hauntings goes into depth about the subject of taphophobia, or the fear of being buried alive. If you suffer from this fear, or even claustrophobia, then this episode might not be for you. Proceed with caution, and as always, welcome to Humble Hauntings. It is well past midnight when you enter the graveyard. You memorized the best path to get to her mausoleum days ago now. After all, this cemetery is vast and there is no room for error. There is only now. There is only tonight. You slip silently past ancient headstones and the statues of angels frozen in time. Everything is still here. Not a cricket nor nightbird stirs in this place, and the only light is that of the waning moon, which weaves in and out of the clouds like a fickle lover. But you are not afraid. You've never been a superstitious man, nor do you believe in spirits. Why should you? Ghosts are only fairy stories, made up to frighten children. With the bolt cutter in hand, you arrive at the mausoleum door. You check the name inscribed above just to be sure. After you are certain this is the correct crypt, you cut away the chains that hold the stone doors shut. With barely a sound, you slip inside. Your heart races, but not out of fear. The treasure you seek is only inches away from you now. It is such a shame, you think to yourself. What a waste to bury something so valuable and exquisite with the dead. What do corpses need with diamond rings? You find where the recently deceased woman is kept and push away the lid of her coffin. She's not what you expect. Though pale, color still teases the apples of her cheeks, and she does not smell like rotting corpses normally do. In fact, she is preserved so pristinely that it looks as if she's merely in a deep sleep, like a princess in a forgotten tower. You shrug off all these thoughts and focus on the task at hand. There, on her wedding finger, sits the ring, a thick gold band with tiny rubies and emeralds dancing across it, a fat, white diamond at its center. You hungrily reach for it, trying to slip it gently from the dead woman's finger. It doesn't budge. Damn it, you whisper. No matter. I will cut the damn thing off if I have to. You reach for the knife in your left pocket, placing the blade against the flesh of the woman's finger. You are shocked when warm blood begins to trickle down her hand but even more shocked as the dead woman sits bolt upright in her coffin, her eyes flying open and locking onto you. She screams. No, no, this can't be. You're dead. You're dead. She is standing over you before your body hits the ground, before your heart stops from pure fright. Your last thoughts are only two words, 
repeating themselves over and over. You're dead. You're dead. Greetings from the shadow world and welcome to Humble Hauntings, where ghost enthusiasts and lovers of the unknown can pull up a seat and make themselves at home. I am your host, MJ McAdams, part-time shadow person, full-time supernatural seeker. And today we are digging deep into the history of the tragedies that reside just below our feet. We will take a look at the horrors of premature burial and visit the creatures that live amongst the caves and mines, warning us of an impending doom. This is the third installment of the Spirits of the Elements series, and today we will focus on the Earth element, and more specifically, of the souls that lost their lives beneath the rock and soil of this Earth. To be buried while alive is, beyond question, the most terrific of these extremes which has ever fallen to the lot of mere mortality. That it has frequently, very frequently so fallen, will scarcely be denied by those who think. The boundaries which divide life from death are at best shadowy and vague. Who shall say where the one ends and where the other begins? We know that there are diseases in which occur total cessations of all the apparent functions of vitality, and yet in which these cessations are merely suspensions, properly so called. This is a quote from Edgar Allan Poe's horror short story, Premature Burial. It is the story of a man who is plagued by a condition in which he falls into an almost death-like trance at random. It is due to this that our unnamed narrator develops a fear of being buried alive. This particular fear, also known as taphophobia, was no stranger to the world. The folktale known as the Lady with the Ring was incredibly popular in Europe from as early as the 14th to the 19th century. It is a tale that begins with a woman, who is presumably dead, being entombed with a very beautiful and valuable ring. A grave robber who hears of this treasure breaks into her family mausoleum to disinter her. As the grave robber attempts to slip off the ring, he finds that it is stuck on the dead woman's finger. Agitated and eager to take the ring and slip back into the night, he takes a knife out from his pocket. If the ring will not come off, then he will cut it off. But as he makes an incision into the flesh of her ring finger, the woman awakens, not dead at all but an apparent victim of premature burial. This tale is one found all over Europe, and the story's endings vary from place to place. In one tale, she goes back home and lives to be an old woman, who has many sons and daughters. In other versions, the robber dies of fright the moment she wakes from her crypt. Some say the robber merely runs off, and when the woman awakens, she returns home, and it is her husband who dies of fright at the very sight of her. While others say the husband lived, but refused to let the woman inside their home, believing she is a mere ghost or revenant. The stories of premature burial that traveled their way to Europe didn't stop there. No, this story had legs, and soon found its way to America's doorstep. 
While these tales of people being buried alive made for good ghost stories and spine-chilling folklore to spin around the campfire, for those unfortunate few who met this fate, it was all too real. Horribly and devastatingly real. During Poe's lifetime, taphophobia was a fear that was not only common, but altogether perfectly rational. Doctors of this time period didn't have the technological advances we do today, and as such, there were cases where an individual was pronounced dead when they were only in a death-like state. To make matters worse, they were then buried, and only later would it be discovered that a grave mistake had been made. This was typically after strange noises or cries could be heard beneath the earth, desperate sounds of thumping or scratching beneath the fresh-churned soil. More times than not, when they were discovered and hastily disinterred, it was too late. The poor soul's fingernails would be ripped and bloody from scratching at the coffin lid in desperation. Hair would be ripped out, fingers chewed down to the bone, and faces contorted in fear and agony. It was a horrible sight to witness, but not nearly as horrible as waking up to find yourself six feet under the earth with no means of escape. We see an example of these premature burials in Savannah, Georgia, during the 17 and 1800s, when yellow fever had devastated a large portion of the population. Yellow fever was as contagious as it was deadly. In the swampy environment that Savannah, Georgia rested on, mosquitoes were no stranger to the area and carried this virus from victim to victim. With this in mind, it was easy to see how quickly it could affect a population. Yellow fever symptoms included bleeding, muscle aches, and vomiting. As the viral disease progressed, it could cause delirium in those who were infected, then put them into a coma. In this coma, the afflicted person's pulse would slow to a faint crawl, and their breath would become so light and shallow, it was hard to determine if they were breathing at all. The problem was most cases that resulted in a coma weren't likely to come out of it. It would ultimately lead to death. And with no proper tools to detect even the slightest heartbeat, more than a few people who were presumed dead were actually just in a very deep coma. This, of course, would be discovered after the fact. And once dug back up, it wasn't uncommon to see scratch marks on the coffin's lids. Taphophobia knew no economic status, race, or gender. The fear of being buried alive affected everyone from the poor to the upper class and well-known individuals of the time. President George Washington was said to have taphophobia, and as he lay on his deathbed, he gave his secretary specific instructions on how to proceed after his death. I am just going. Have me decently buried. And do not let my body be put into the vault in less than three days after I am dead. In a time where medicine was still very flawed, sometimes the only way to determine if someone was truly dead was to wait for the natural putrefaction of a corpse to set in, which typically began the first few days after a person passed away. So while our first president's request might seem overly cautious, it was not an uncommon one. Some individuals, however, took more drastic measures for their own peace of mind, resorting to practices that would ensure 
no premature burial was in their future. Hans Christian Andersen. He was the man responsible for the Little Mermaid, Thumbelina, the Snow Queen, and countless other fairy tales told to children over a hundred years now. As it turns out, he also suffered from quite a few different phobias, one of which was the fear of being buried alive. Just before he passed away, he was staying with his friends Dorothea and Moritz Melchior in Copenhagen. Right before he passed, he asked Dorothea to open his veins so that everyone would know he was truly dead before being buried. He was not alone in this request. Alfred Noble, inventor of dynamite, who left the bulk of his vast estate to the creation of the Nobel Prize, also made this request in his own will. But he took it a step further, just to be safe. It is my express wish that following my death, my veins shall be opened, and when this has been done and competent doctors have confirmed clear signs of death, my remains shall be cremated in a so-called crematorium. But it was the famous composer Frederick Chopin who took matters to the utmost extreme to ensure that his fears of being buried alive would never be realized. As death was upon Chopin's door, he requested that his heart be cut out of his chest to ensure he was truly dead and that no errors would be made. The earth is suffocating. Swear to make them cut me open so I won't be buried alive. His wishes were granted. His heart was indeed cut out and sent to his homeland in Poland. There, it was pickled and has been preserved since his death in 1849. Over 150 years later, it was determined by scientists that his exact cause of death was a rare complication associated with tuberculosis, a complication that caused the swelling of his heart and ultimately led to his death. The Victorian era saw a heightened number of people with taphophobia, so much so that safety coffins came into a fashion. A safety coffin, by definition, was any coffin specifically designed for the occupant to leave it in case of premature burial. These coffins could be fitted with a glass panel so that if any signs of life was observed, the occupant could be released upon discovery. Others were fitted with a sort of pulley system, which would allow a victim of premature burial to ring a bell upon awakening in order to alert others above ground so that they may be dug up and set free. These requests might seem over the top, or even quite severe to the average person today. But these next two tales I will share with you might just change that perspective. And I will warn you, these tales are not for the faint of heart. In 1810, deep in the heart of Honey Island Swamp, near Wilmington, North Carolina, Samuel Jocelyn got into an argument with his wife at their hunting lodge. 
And so, in the dead of night, and in the middle of winter, no less, Samuel mounted his horse and rode off. It would be the last decision he would ever make. Soon after his body was discovered in at least four inches of freezing water, his limbs stiff and frozen. To the average eye, there was no doubt that Samuel Jocelyn was dead. He was buried in St. James Episcopal Church Cemetery soon after, and that was that, or so his loved ones assumed. For the next three days, friends who were close to Samuel began having horrible nightmares. In these dreams, Samuel would come to them begging to be dug up and set free, claiming he was still alive and needed their help. After the nightmares refused to relent, his closest friends gave in and saw to it that his body was disinterred. The nearby police heard horrified screaming near the cemetery and went to investigate. What they found was Samuel Jocelyn's closest friends standing petrified around his open coffin. He lay in a pool of his own blood, his fingers all ripped to the bone. Upon awakening, Samuel had attempted to escape from his grave, only to succumb to suffocation and blood loss before being able to set himself free. It is said even now that if you visit St. James Episcopal Church Cemetery at night, you can see a shadowy figure of Samuel lingering near the grave that involuntarily became his final resting place. It's a tragic thing when someone dies before their time, especially if this death is linked to a horrible accident or misunderstanding. Such was the fortune of Julia Laguerre, and hers is a story that no one will ever forget. Our story begins in Edisto Island, South Carolina, in the southern portion of Charleston County during the mid-1800s. A young woman named Julia was visiting family when she suddenly became horribly ill. The illness took its toll on Julia, and her condition rapidly deteriorated, until finally, she fell into a deep coma. After weeks of waiting for Julia to regain consciousness, she was finally pronounced dead. There were no signs of life left in her body. She lay still and pale. Her family was sure that their dear Julia had passed on to the other side, so they quickly made funeral arrangements. During this time period, embalming still wasn't as commonly practiced as it is today. The funeral and burial of a body all had to be arranged in a matter of days before decomposition fully set in. And because Julia had passed away due to illness, it was also important to reduce the spread of disease. Leaving behind a husband and young son, Julia Laguerre was brought to her final resting place, the Presbyterian Church Cemetery, and was interred in the family mausoleum. Two things were sealed that day, the great stone door of the mausoleum and Julia's fate. 
It was years later when tragedy struck the Laguerre family once more. Julia's son had passed away. From what, we do not know, but one thing was clear. When the family opened the mausoleum to inter the young man, what they found waiting inside would haunt them for the rest of their lives. As they unlocked the mausoleum and opened the stone door, a corpse fell forward. It was the corpse of Julia Laguerre. You see, Julia had been in a deep coma, a very deep coma. To the naked eye, it would have been more than safe to say that she was dead. But she wasn't. When Julia awoke, we can only imagine how she felt. Confused by her surroundings at first, and then terrified when she realized what had occurred. The way her body was found, the family knew she had been leaning against that stone door, spending her final moments desperate to open it, to escape. And there she stayed, until her very last breath. Like all life, this is the end of the chapter, not the book. For while Julia's life had ended in tragedy, she was far from gone. This was something that her family would soon discover. Once they interred her son in the mausoleum, the family reburied Julia, their hearts twice as broken as before. It was this heartbreak, loss, and extreme guilt that drove them to visit the mausoleum often, to bring flowers and care for it. But something was different. After Julia was discovered, the mausoleum door never closed again. And this wasn't for the lack of trying. The stone door was always chained and locked, but whenever someone came to visit, they would find it to be wide open. The family and the cemetery caretakers did everything they could think of to reinforce it with chains, locks, and even concrete, but to no avail. That door was going to stay open, and nothing anyone did could change that. Julia Laguerre would make sure of it. If you visit the Presbyterian Church Cemetery on Odisto Island, you will find that the mausoleum door is still open to this day. It is said that a strong spiritual presence can be felt there as you approach the stone structure. But take care. The open door is not a welcome mat. It is a statement. It is Julia's spirit telling us, telling the world, that neither she nor anyone who rests with her in the mausoleum will ever be trapped again. Thank you for joining me here today at Humble Hauntings. Stick around after this brief message from our sponsors to hear the tale of cave-dwelling creatures whose presence could spell out an unfortunate and untimely end. There's something strange and rather eerie 
about underground places like caves or mines. They inspire the darker side of our imagination and have an air of mystery around them. So it's no surprise that there are hundreds, if not thousands, of legends surrounding these places. These stories illuminate some of the most frightening and supernatural creatures in our lore. Some are dangerous, some are simply mysterious, and others, others are a little bit of both. They were called knockers, or by some, tommy knockers. Tiny gnome-like men, green in color, that dressed in miners' clothing. People have been telling tales of these creatures for as long as mining has been around. They were said to live deep underground in the tunnels, and the further down you went, the more likely you were to stumble upon one. Some say they were spirits of miners that had died in the mines. You have to remember, mining was a very dangerous profession, and the risk of a tunnel collapse was always a possibility, and a fatal one at that. Most people believe that the knockers had good intentions. You see, they were called knockers because of the knocking sound they made as a warning. Usually it meant to turn back, for there was danger ahead. And other times, it was a warning to leave the tunnel immediately, for it was about to collapse. In turn for their helpful warnings, miners would pack a little extra food in their lunches to leave as offerings for the knockers, and would avoid whistling in the mines, for it was said that the creatures hated the sound and found it quite offensive. There's another side to this story, however. For not all tales of Tommyknockers painted them out to be helpful spirits. Some believed them to be malicious in nature. It was said that the knocking heard in the mines was not a warning, but the creatures themselves breaking the support beams of the tunnels. Others say that they would call out someone's name to lure them deep into the mines until they were either lost or fell victim to some tragic accident. But no matter your stance on knockers, there was just one rule you had to abide by. Never disrespect them. Because it might just cost you your life. It happened over 200 years ago, according to the legend, in the hills of Smokeshire. Seven miners were working in these hills at the time, mining for gold when they heard a faint tapping sound. The sound became louder until it grew to a very familiar knocking. Four of the seven men grabbed their belongings and began quickly making their way out of the mines. They called to the other three who lingered behind, telling them to make haste. The knockers had given them fair warning. The options were to leave immediately or perish. But the three men who stayed behind were not so superstitious. They only laughed at their fellow miners as they scurried to the surface. And then, they made a grave mistake. They began to taunt the Tommyknockers. They joked about the little men, 
provoking them to come show themselves and saying things like, Come out and face us, knockers. Show us what you got. Their laughter was cut short as the tunnel where they stood began to collapse on top of them. The four who heeded the knockers' warnings made it out alive, just barely. But right before the entrance collapsed, something drove one of the men to turn and look behind them. In the distance, amongst the falling rubble, stood three tiny men watching them as they left. And then, they were gone. Earth, the soil, the rocks, caves, and mountains. So much life is made possible because of this element. Time may erode it, but one thing that will never change is its power. For just like all elements, it can give and it can take away. We all return to the earth eventually. Unfortunately, due to unforeseen circumstances, this return is sometimes too soon. Tragedy is a part of life, but sometimes we learn the hard way that there are fates worse than death. Fates that well may lead to an untimely end underground. Thank you for joining me today at Humble Hauntings, a place that paranormal enthusiasts can always call home. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe and share with your friends. When it comes to ghostly ventures, the more, the merrier. But until next time, my spookables, remember, home is where the haunt is. <laughs>